0: Ladies and gentlemen, on P-Price Extra, we want to take you on different journeys. This was a dear friend of mine, Jim Bowen, the late, great Jim Bowen. Very intelligent man, a very clever man, and a very funny man. I want to take you back in time to my interview with the late, great Jim Bowen. We are actually in the Lake District, way, way out off the M6. We travelled up here this morning, early, as breakfast guests of uh, an amazing gentleman. We'll tell you about him in a second. I'll describe where I am. There's beautiful cars outside. We're in a railway station. There's a a train just gone past. There's a swimming pool out there and there's horses everywhere. We're actually at Jim Bowen's house. First of all, thank you, Jim, for allowing us for breakfast.
1: No problems. Nice to see you. Nice to see you looking so well at this time in the morning.
0: I think it's ridiculous. We left it at past six.
1: No, I didn't know it was daylight at this time. It's marvellous.
0: Well, I haven't seen and I was working last night at Yarmouth.
1: Yeah. Oh, dear. A John Mills double. <laughs> oh, that's
0: very good, yeah. yeah. Jim, we, we, we're going to play some music and find out about you. What I want to know is, where did it all start? I mean, where were you born? Well, I was
1: adopted, on the, oddly enough, on, in your part of the world, on the Wirral, in Heswall. I was born in Heswall. I think my father was the Welsh Regiment, because uh, my mother put, had, to, had to have me adopted. So I went to a ch- Church of England children's home at six months. I was illegitimate. Um, and at the time, of course, that really was a, quite a stigma. Um, 1937, that was. Um, and then the, I got adoptive parents when I was nine months old. Uh, Mr and Mrs Whittaker, Joe jo and Annie Whitaker, who took me to Accrington, where I lived all my life, up to being 18 when I went in the army. Um, so basically a Lancastrian, but initially born, born in, in, on the Wirral. Yeah. Are your parents still alive? No, sadly they're not. They've missed the, this lovely fortunate nine years i've had they've missed which at times i'm disappointed about but but um but no they missed it all
0: did they see any success any of your tvs yeah
1: i think i think my dad saw a little bit my dad died about oh it had been nine years ago now yeah he saw a little bit of it mum saw none of it but um yeah dad saw a little bit but it never impressed him he was he was in his 80s when he died, and he was he was at one of the school 1480 more where, where you didn't show your emotions. Yeah, it doesn't perhaps apply to you with your parents, but my parents, being as old as they were, they were 40 odd when they adopted me. You see, and it was there's a lovely story about when when mum and dad had been married, adopted mum and dad had been married, and no children. Obviously, my mum was like a beanpole; she slim as that. I mean, literally like a like a beanpole, and. Weeks and weeks and weeks carrying on. Then, hello L.O.J. hello Annie the, in the in Clayton Le Moors near Accrington, and then they went to collect me from the children's home, and my mother was next day walking around with a pram, and of course you're talking now 1937. Where, well, and everybody's going, and they're all whispering, got, "See what's in that pram? Is it cold? Uh, what, what's in what's what, what's in the pram?" You say. So one woman came up. My mother used to tell me the story. She said, "Oh, got, oh, hey, she said, a little. What is it, a boy or a girl?" My mum said, "It's a little boy," and she'd seen her the previous day, thin as a thing. She said, hey, isn't he like his dad?" Treated me this. Always used to tell me that, uh, "Isn't he like his dad?" Of course, my dad. <laughs> my dad was. Uh, no, there was no connection at all. Um, yeah, so we live. That's where we lived, Yeah, we live
0: there. I don't know yeah. if you know, but I'm adopted. Are you re- I didn't know Pete. Yeah, I was adopted. I was a war baby and I was uh, illegitimate as well. Yeah. Now, how did you feel after you lost your mum and dad or through your life about trying to find
1: your no, real mum? No, no, I feel very strongly about it. I think if your mum and dad adopt you, the people who adopted me at nine months, uh, that was my mum and dad. And they, whatever I am today is down to them. And not, sadly, down to the lady who gave birth to me. I've no desire or inc- inclination to find out my roots, my mum, my dad, I think that is the height of ingratitude to the, to the adoptive parents. So I've, if anybody asked me, I couldn't give a toss really about what my mum and dad did. It would be an embarrassment to them maybe and certainly it would be my adoptive mum and dad feel extremely hurt, I would have thought. You, know? you can imagine they spent all that money bringing me up and giving me every chance that I wouldn't have got in the children's home and here am I now saying, excuse me mum, I'm going to try and find my real mum now. You couldn't hurt him much more than that, could you?
0: Not really. So we've established now that you're from the world originally, which yeah. I never knew. All the yeah. times I've known you, yeah. um, you're listening to City Talk. We're actually in the Lake District live in Jim Bowen's beautiful, beautiful home. Oh, nice, when you actually uh, left school, any desire to be a comic then? Because I know you became a teacher. Yeah.
1: Well, what I did first time, round, first time round, we had GCS then before this GCSE, and and I took eight. GCEs and and failed nine I mean I really did do badly I, I failed subjects I never took you know <laughs> um, and I left school with less qualifications than the caretaker and he was a clever lad um, so I, I went to work and emptied dustbins for a year in Padium near Burnley and uh, and I, went, I thought uh, bright lad I was, it took me 12 months to realise there wasn't going to be a career in this so I went back to the head at... Uh, at the Accrington Grammar School, and I said, and I went in. I was a big lad then. I've been I started smoking, gone out with with all the lads. I've been working twelve months, you see. And I went back to the head, and I said, "Look, I'm awfully sorry. Uh, can I come back and do my GCs again?" He said, "Well, he's seventeen now." He said, what, what, do, "What do you think? Are you going to do? You expect to walk into the sixth form?" I said, "You put me where you like. I just want to get my GCs and and try and salvage this 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 mess I've made." You see, he said, "You go back in the fourth form." So imagine, right? I'd got to go back into the, at the start of the fifth year in a grammar school. And I'd, that, I was two years older than anybody else in the class, and I'd been out in the wide world. So I've got to readjust the school disciplines and all the bit. And then, of course, then I took all nine GCEs and got my head together and, and sorted it out.
0: You went back to school out off your own bat and got your yeah. education, got yourself sorted, yeah. and got all the...
1: Yeah, I, got, yeah, I did it did well enough, yeah.
0: So what happened then?
1: Well, I did national service. I defended the country... From ravage of war in Shrewsbury, stop, stop the Welsh coming in, and uh, <laughs> I did that as a national serviceman. <laughs> I did that as a national serviceman for for two years. I was quite proud of uh, of getting out of the uniform.
0: Tell me, you've got you've got children now. Yeah. Um, how do you feel? Because you've got a son and a daughter. How do you feel as a father now about national service?
1: Well, there's not an economic need for it. What I do feel is that, that somewhere along the line, the youngsters today are missing out. They're missing out uh, the comprehension of discipline. Th- there's no, there isn't any discipline anymore in, in any arena of our society. Schools, even the police, who'd be a policeman today? You know, who'd be a school teacher today? Because not a lot of discipline there. And we, without the ground rules, I seem to have been saying this a lot, so much lately, I think you owe it to your children to give them the ground rules of life. That's why we have white lines down the middle of the road because all the cars can drive on the correct side. No white lines, no guidelines. We have bumps, and I think that's a fair analogy I can I can give in in educa- in an educational context. You know, I think teachers ought to be allowed to be harder. I really do.
0: So when you were in, when you did your national service, yeah. did that put you instead for being a teacher as well? I think it put me instead
1: for understanding the need for discipline and uh, the only reason is a, a group of thirty men. March for a mile in three columns of ten is because that's the quickest and most efficient way to get them there. They'd get there eventually if they all ambled there, but the most efficient way is a disciplined way. Similarly, in the classroom, the only way you're going to teach is get all those 30 heads looking at you. And you've got to do that by whatever means you, you've, it takes. Mm. If you're weak and, and and uninspiring and and perhaps... Not not all that outgoing you, you're going to have problems uh, so you, so you've got to compensate for that by by discipline by saying, look let's get the ground rules right here and if that means if that means frightening a boy or a girl or a class, but then frighten them. what subjects did you teach? well I qualified in maths and p e because in in the army I, I, I did a, a rather serious uh, error committed a rather serious error uh, during the NASA. Crisis. I, I sent the wrong ammunition down to. Oh, This. Listen to this. As, this is in '56, August '56. Uh, this is all coming back to what, 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 how I qualified in what, in what subject. But the story's worth telling. Um, <laughs> uh, We've got to send this ammunition across. To, to there was the the Suez crisis, mm-hmm. and I was an ammunition examiner, which was a highly skilled trade. I trained for 12 months, and got the three tips and the, the flaming air and all the bit. They used to call it the flaming air, an air with a flame on it. Highly qualified, uh, within the, you know, the narrow realms of ammunition. And I had to send this ammunition abroad. And I sent the wrong batch. I sent an older batch of ammunition than I should have done. And the older the ammunition, the less distance it can travel, because cordite weakens, and it, it evaporates and it erodes. And had that consignment of shells gone to, to Egypt and they'd fired them, we would have been bombing our own lads.
0: Really. Honest. So what happened about
1: that? Well, mm-hmm. well fortunately, at Barry Docks, another ammunition examiner saw, him, saw them and said, Crikey, she's wrong. this what, 1942, with 1936 stuff. What, what's he doing? So he rang me and said, did you check all these boxes? I said, well, I had a squad, you see. Bobby Charlton was in the squad. And Bobby was the Lance Jack then, you see. Um, and I said, oh, no. He said, look, he said, I'd better send them all back. Which meant loading a train up and sending it all the way back up to Shrewsbury. So, so the colonel found out about it. Well, of course, I mean, serious offence. So I was called in front of the colonel. I thought, well, I've gone here, I've I'm, I'm finished, I'm in Colchester for CB, you know, for the rest of me. He said, you realise what... Oh, I said, honestly, sir, I said, I really do. He said, we'll take <laughs> He said, we'll, "We'll take you off ammunition for a while. He said, we'll give you a rest. <laughs> I said, thank you, sir. He said, you're going down to Aldershock to the School of Physical Training. Oh. So I went down and did PE, which was brilliant, actually, because when I came out, I got a college, I got a job in a school which which wanted a PE teacher and a maths teacher, which was great. Yeah. So the PE I'd done in the army, I managed to translate into school.
0: So tell me, uh, as a school teacher, were yeah. you a disciplinarian? Yeah,
1: I was. A, I was. I was a, a horror. Yeah, I was a tyrant. Yeah, and I make no apology for it. I, the kids knew exactly where they stood with me, exactly. No. Uh, if I said no, it was it was no.
0: So teachers today, you must be very frustrated at what they have to put up with.
1: I'm I'm, I'm not frustrated. I'm am annoyed. I'm annoyed that that the, there are so many of the teaching profession care enough, A, to do the job, uh, and they do the job with minimal backup, and and I feel so sorry for them because the morale is below the knees. I promise you. Um, they, they can't smack a child. They can't smack the back of a leg of a child. They can't, they can't even verbally chastise a child too strongly, otherwise the mother's in, and the head's hamstrung because he can't he can't back a teacher against a parent because the the, lo, the local authorities say, oh, oh no, we mustn't smack children, we mustn't have, so there is there's no fibre of, of of backup in the schools, you see, so morale drops, so heads drop, so standards drop, and it's a
0: vicious spiral, a downward spiral. Uh, Jim, we've talked about you as a school teacher. While you were a school teacher, was you then becoming a comedian?
1: Yeah, I used to. I was quite funny as a teacher. I used to tell, you you know, humorous stories and we used to have a laugh with the kids. Uh, but socially, I found I was Jack the Lad when we used to go down to the pub. And I used to do, uh, when Doddy was, well, when Doddy was, I mean, he still is, but Doddy was king in the 60s. And I could do the first 20 minutes of Doddy's act word for word. He was my hero. I mean, I used to just sit. In fact, when we got married at first, I remember one year he was at the opera house and he did, he did, we went 16 times to see him and I could, do, I could do it all and I used to nick little lines here and there and try him out and then I started doing the clubs Can um, you remember your first club? Yeah Yeah I can It was at, a, at a, re, a pub called The Regent in Blackburn Sunday lunchtime and we went in and there was a keyboard player on an old old fella terrible drink problem and uh, he, he'd got to get drunk to sit down you know I mean he could stand up when he was sober it, it, when he, it, he had to get drunk to sit that's how big the problem was Um and he was playing away and this, this comic came on and he wasn't very good I thought which was extremely arrogant to say I'd never been on a stage and I just let slip I said God, God I'm funnier than him and the manager did no more than when the guy came off he said we've got a volunteer bump," and I went up there and only knew one joke so I just padded it out and padded it out lasted about five minutes and came off and it, it worked and the guy said uh, can you come back next week you see, I said yeah fine no problem he said uh, three quid alright and, and I said why oh, is that all I have to pay? <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> Honest. 1960, 65. I, I thought you had to pay to learn, you see. Yeah. He said, oh, no, no, we'll pay you. I said, pay you, me, get three quid. Yeah, he said, but you'll have to do two spots. I said, no problem. Put me down, I'll be here. You know, start the car. So all week I'm there writing what every gag I knew, you see, and practising them at home. And I wrote them all on cards. And of course, when I went back the following week to get up there and do it, to the same audience, uh, uh, they buried me. I mean, more than that, they actually passed Spades up onto the stage and said, <laughs> you dig it and we'll cover you in. Tell That's me, w-
0: uh, were you married when this was happening? Yeah, yeah, we'd been married uh, fifty six years. So tell me, how did Phyllis, your lovely wife, who cooked us breakfast this morning, yeah. how did she cope with you saying, I'm not going to be a school teacher anymore, I'm going to be a comic?
1: Well, at that stage, I wasn't going to be I wasn't going to be a comic. I was going to be a schoolteacher and, and do a bit of comicing on the side. It was only when the comedians came up and I was on the box every Friday night with Big Bernard and you know lovely Charlie Williams and George Roper and and well sad to say lovely Eddie Eddie Flanagan mm-hmm. you know and um, we used to have great times on that and then it became decision time because I was a deputy head of this school and I had to decide I couldn't I couldn't go both ways I would got to decide.
0: So you were deputy head while you were on the comedian? Oh yeah yeah. How and did I was, you
1: cope with the kids? Yeah, it was funny because I used to go into school and the the kids would say. Not too good last night, sir. It's, it's funny, really. Yeah, we used to watch it. Yeah.
0: Do you miss the kids?
1: Uh, no, no, I don't. Because I mean, I don't really like them anymore. No. I don't see too many nice ones. No. is That's that, Isn't that terrible for a No, cop, no, cop,
0: no not say at say all. No, I mean you. You,
1: you know the sort of. I can't stand a little bit ill-mannered, badly behaved kids.
0: Right, well, we've talked about your life in the army, we've talked about your career as a teacher. Where did Bullseye come in?
1: Well, it's a it's a fascinating story, and it's it's, it's what show business is all about. It just proves conclusively, A, that the first thing you need in show business is a tremendous amount of luck to get on. The first series was horrendous. I thought I'd committed professional Harry Carey. Um, difficult show to do, a lot of cameras, a lot of geometry to it. A lot of movement. You've got to get split screens with the darts and the faces of the dart players and, and the dart player throwing and a, a lot of movement in it. Um, but they stuck with me. That, uh, that a lovely little story. You, you, I think you'll, the listeners will enjoy, especially down in Liverpool. You'll, you'll appreciate this opportunism. I've got a very dear friend in Kent, a chief constable, lovely man, and we're, we're good buddies. And at the end of the first series, uh, they said we're going for we're going for 26, but we're doing them Sunday afternoons. Now this is. Um, we're talking now about a very close friend. So I arrived in, in Dartford where, we, where I was doing the gig and Big Arthur came to meet me, my pal, the guy you've known I said, Arthur, they're doing another series of bullseye. And Arthur genuinely said, who've they got to do it? <laughs> and he, he meant it. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, well, surely you're not doing it. I said, yeah. Oh, he said, you, you do surprise me. And he was a good mate, and still is.
0: But the secret of the success was the fact that you were Joe Public, sitting in their room, making mistakes like they would.
1: (coughs) Absolutely, yeah. I mean, and the reason, and it stayed like that as well. Actually, we've got better at the game, uh, but it's it's remained fallible. The contest, the contestants, can all be beaten by the viewer. You know what I mean? They can all do better than the contestants. And I'm there not to break any pots. I'm there just to tell the story.
0: You know these contestants, these yeah. small... I mean, oh, does any, okay. do any bad ones get through?
1: Well, there are thousands apply every year. And the only only ones have we ever had a bad one. And he was a real poser. He, he, all day he was a pain. He was treating everybody... Yes, oh, I'm going to gamble, I'm going to win all the prizes. And nobody in the building liked him. Within ten minutes, there was a six-foot space around him. Wherever he went, there was a gap, right? He was an arrogant man. And he had his wife, who he treated like a backward Labrador, right? <laughs> he used <laughs> And she she followed him. <laughs> well, he, honestly, he really was a male chauvinist. And none of us had any time for him. And Greeny said to me, forgive the language, he said, oh, that sod doesn't win tonight. And we're not supposed to express our feelings, obviously. And we don't in public. I said, no, we've got to get rid of him somehow. <laughs> it's only in fun. Anyway, the guy's playing out of his tree. I mean, he he wins 700 quid, wins all the prizes. And, and Greeny's going wild opposite the board. Greeny said the sod he's going to win and we knew it was a car and everything anyway it came to the throw at the end and his wife was useless at darts we knew that so we thought well he could bottle out here and we were hoping it's awful to say we were hoping he would lose everything because it's it's all or nothing you see so he's either he stands to win now he's at the board for the 101 and he stands to win 1200 quid with the prizes round the prize board and a car or nothing but he's obviously a very good player so his wife throws comes up to the boat and she's no idea. And she's throwing them all over the place. And she gets seventy five. Right? And Greeny by now is red. He's fuming because nowhere can this man not get less than twenty six. Greenie's the producer. Tony Green. No, no, Tony Green, the scorer. Oh. Who, who's standing opposite me on the, the on the boat, you think? And Greenie's face is oh, he said Is there nothing we can do? <laughs> you know. And of course you shouldn't have said that so the guy comes up to the board he changes his jacket for the second half of the show I mean that's (laughs) such a guy first dart 20 so he's now got 95 so he's two darts left to get six right throws the next dart quite casually went in the five so he now needs one to win six and a half grand and all the audience are there and none of the audience like it. you can tell (laughs) you see so the arrogant man for the last dart he didn't even look at the board he turned away from the board, No, and he just went through it, and he threw it with his head away from the board, and the dart bounced out. <laughs> so he lost, but th- that was bad enough, but the audience all cheered. They all went, <laughs> And we couldn't transmit it, because all the, the viewer would have seen was this poor soul losing seven grand. They didn't know he was a plonker. They've only had him for 25 minutes at Sunday tea time. We've had him for seven hours, you see. And the audience hated him, and they were waving their hats and handkerchiefs, and He lost. So
0: we couldn't transmit the show. We've still got it in the can. That really saddens me listening back. That was a long, long time ago. The late, great Jim Bowen, who is a lovely human being, and I miss him very much. I hope you enjoyed that interview. Jim Bowen.